invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Mark, the ninth chapter, as we consider the subject of overcoming uh, doubt, standing on the promises, standing on the Word, knowing Christ, and uh, overcoming doubt. Our culture is increasingly uh, comprised of people who have doubts about God and doubts certainly about the Bible. Those, for example, who embrace the theory of evolution discount the need for any belief in a creator. The numbers of those who work and uh, that we go to work with and go to school with uh, who question the inspiration and the accuracy of Scripture continues to grow. Uh, Barna, the, the group, recently concluded that 25% of all Christians say they experience spiritual doubt. 40% say they ex have experienced doubt in the past but have worked through it, and 30% say they've never had any doubts at all. That last group makes me wonder if they've ever thought really deeply about God and deeply about His Word. In our, cult in our culture today, millennials are two times more likely to have doubts than previous generations. Men are more likely to have doubts about God than women. And sadly, those who have gone through college and higher education are twice as likely to experience doubt about their faith as those who have a high school education or less. How many of you this morning would acknowledge that there have been seasons in your life when you entertained some doubts? Or perhaps that you wrestled with thoughts of unbelief. Over the years, I've come to understand that spiritual doubts are common. They are not unusual. There are times when we have questions about life, questions about God, questions about His Word, especially when we're going through the fire and life hands us some hurt and we're left to try to make sense of it all, spiritual doubts and wrestling with unbelief are more common than we want to talk about. Perhaps we don't want to be honest and admit that we have doubts or we have wrestled with unbelief, perhaps out of fear that other people will judge us and look down upon us spiritually, or perhaps we're afraid we're going to be pounced upon by our brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we just kind of hold it in and hide the struggle. You certainly see all kinds of examples in Scripture, men and women of God who had doubts and unbelief. As a church family, we've been trying to encourage all of us to read our Bibles more, and last year you were challenged to read through the New Testament, and this year you're being challenged to read through the Old Testament. For those of you who have followed this past week's Old Testament reading guide, you are reminded of Sarah and Abraham. You remember God established a covenant with them. Abram was 75 years old. Sarah was 65. And do you remember what you read this week? God said to this old couple, I will bless you, and through you I will bless other nations, and through you I'm going to give you descendants that are more numerous than the stars in the heavens. Up to that time in their life, Sarah and Abram were barren. She was unable to ever have children, but God promised them that they would have descendants. 
And God continued to come and send messages to them. You're going to have descendants. You're going to have an heir. And he's going to reproduce and multiply. And again, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sands on the shore. And then years pass, 25 years pass. And Sarah is 89 years old. And Abraham is 99 years old. And God keeps telling them the same thing. Then in Genesis chapter 17, the Bible says Abram falls on his face before God and he laughs. And the Bible says in Abram's unbelief, he says in his heart, shall a son be born to me when I'm an old man, when I'm 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is almost 90, bear a child? And then on in Genesis chapter 18, Sarah hears an angel of the Lord speak to Abram, and the angel says to Abram, yes, Sarah is going to have a son. And in that 11th verse of that 18th chapter, it says, now Abram and Sarah were old, well advanced in years, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, therefore Sarah laughed within herself. She doubted God. She doubted his word, and both Sarah and Abraham, if you study their life, there's all kinds of ups and downs regarding their faith. But in that instance, they yielded to unbelief. Think about the Exodus story. God tells his people, go into the land and, and possess the land that I'm going to hand over to you. And what happened? Do you remember? The Bible says they chose to walk by sight instead of faith and surrendered to their fears forgetting who God was, for, for failing to remember all that God had done in their past. And because of their doubt, they missed the opportunity. And as a result, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Prior to the actual exodus, God delivers Moses, saves him from death, and then calls him to go later in life to Pharaoh to be his representative to deliver his word. And in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, Moses begins to make excuses. Tells God why he's not the right guy. I don't know enough. I'm not a good enough speaker. They won't listen to me. I don't even know your name. And at the heart of all of his excuses, there's doubt. Fast forward to the New Testament. One of Jesus' disciples is known for one thing. We don't know all the other things that he later accomplished as an apostle, but Thomas is known for one thing. He's the, he's the doubter. And I could go on and on and on this morning with biblical examples of God's people being subject to doubt and unbelief. In the text that we're going to read, there's an example of Jesus' disciples. They are hindered by unbelief. And so I want us to go through this story, notice their doubts, and then for application, discover what God would want us to understand on how do we overcome doubt and unbelief and grow stronger in our faith. And so I invite you to read with me in Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? 
Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed and foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the people that came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Pray with me. Lord, would you speak to us and Move us from weak faith and unbelief and doubt in any areas of our life and move us to faith and deeper devotion to you, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The background for this text is found in the earlier verses of the chapter. We picked up at verse 14. If you look at verse 1 through verse 13, I would encourage you to read it right now, but it's the story of Jesus taking his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto Mount Hermon to be transfigured. The word transfigured there is metamorphosis. It sounds like a word that you learn about in junior high and high school. There's a change, and which means that Peter, James, and John saw Jesus. They beheld on the Mount of Transfiguration, his glory, which meant they began to see more of Jesus' divine essence, of God's radiance in Christ. And the point of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up on the Mount to see this was to strengthen their understanding in who he really was. 
And imagine the effect that that had upon their faith when they see Jesus on the mount, transfigured, this glory of God radiating from him, and they see him speaking with Elijah and see him speaking with Moses and then hearing a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Even before that, the context in chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, Jesus asks the disciples, who do men say I am? And they say they're in good things. And then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter is the spokesman for the entire group of disciples and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so there in that first confession at Caesarea Philippi, as well upon the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is being very deliberate, very intentional, trying to deepen these disciples in their understanding of who he really was. It's very important for them to have faith and continue out the ministry when he leaves them. They need to know who Jesus is. And so as Peter, James, and John descend the slopes of Mount Hermon, greatly encouraged, greatly strengthened in their faith by that encounter, they quickly discover that the other nine disciples back, back where they go are not doing so well. In fact, the text makes it clear that while Jesus is gone, these other disciples, these other nine, are unsuccessful in their ministry, and actually they experience some failure. And the reason is, the Bible says, because of their unbelief. Notice in verses 14 through 16, the scene, the setting is described. All four of them come off the mount, Peter, James, John, and Jesus. And when they come down off the mount, what does... Mark record that they see. The Bible says they see a large multitude, great in size, and this large multitude is gathered around the other nine disciples along with some scribes, and they are, there's an argument going on. The words, some Bibles say they're disputing, these scribes are disputing with Jesus' disciples, and it conveys this idea of there's, there's a heated exchange taking place. And it's so heated, the, this argument, this debate between the scribes and the Pharisees, that it begins to draw a crowd, a great crowd, a large crowd. And verse 15 says, once Jesus and the other three disciples arrive on the scene, the, all three groups, the other disciples, the crowds, as well as the scribes, see Jesus. Verse 15, when they see him, they're greatly amazed. They run to him and begin to greet him. They, they welcome him. And in verse 16, Jesus asks, not his disciples, he asks the scribes, what are you arguing with my disciples about? The scribes were those who studied the law, and the word scribe means to write, and that's what they did. They, they wrote laws. They would study the Old Testament, the scriptures, and they would write out application interpretations, and they would write legal documents and they despised Jesus because he contradicted some of their interpretations of the law. And here, as Jesus, when he asks this question to the scribes, what are you guys arguing with my disciples about? Mark presents a seeker. Verses 17 and 18. A dad who has a sick boy is seeking Jesus for 
help and he's desperate. And before the scribes can respond back to Jesus' question, this dad tells Jesus, my son is sick. I brought him to you. You are not here. And so I turn to your representatives. I turn to your disciples. And if you look at verse 18, the last part of the verse, it says, but they could not. They couldn't do anything. They could not do anything. They, in other words, they were of no help. And I begin to think about that picture. It's kind of a sad picture, kind of a pitiful picture. If you think about what is happening, and if you fast forward that picture 2,000 years to today, I can imagine something like this. Someone's living, and they hit bottom, and they're hurting, and they need help. And the Holy Spirit begins to bring them to their spiritual senses and they feel drawn to Christ and they feel the nerve, need to turn to Jesus, to try Jesus. And since Jesus is gone, since he is not physically here, they do what the dad does and they turn to Jesus' representatives. Jesus, the Son of God, physically came, walked this earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, was raised from the dead, and before he left, before he ascended back to heaven to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his representatives, to empower us, for us to be his witnesses, to be his servants, and he provided us with his word so that we would know his will, and he promised to hear and answer our prayers. And so someone in their desperation, in their hour of need, comes to their spiritual senses, the Holy Spirit begins to draw them to Christ, and so they turn to Jesus' representatives. They come to us. They decide to go to church. I think I'll try. I think I'll give it a try. And, and what would the verdict be? If they're hurting like the dead in desperation, feel a need to turn to Christ, and they come to us, his representatives, if they came to Hillcrest Baptist Church, when they came, would they be helped or hurt? Would they be loved and served, or would they be ignored and turned away? Do you remember when the disciples asked Jesus, what's the most important thing for us to, to know in all of the law? What's the most important thing for us to grasp? And do you remember what Jesus said? It's pretty simple. The most important thing for my representatives, for my disciples, is that they love me and worship me and live for my glory. And second is that they love other people, especially those like the dad in the text who are hurting and need help. You see, it's our love for God and understanding his love for us that produces within us a love for for other people, especially people who are sick and know they need help. They know they need a physician. And when they turn to Jesus, 
We are his representatives. We're to provide care and service to those in need. That's the scene. A seeker desperate for Jesus is disappointed because Jesus' representatives could not help. And the reason those representatives could not help is because they were still characterized by unbelief. They still didn't really grasp who Jesus was. And so in verse 19 comes the diagnosis. Jesus asks, after listening to this dad and after seeing his boy, it's a, it's a, it's a great word, verse 19. Oh, it's a powerful word. Jesus says, oh. It's a descriptive word. It is a word conveying heartfelt emotion. I think that word, as Jesus says, oh, it's conveying frustration and some disappointment. Jesus is feeling some sadness. Oh, you faithless, doubting generation. My question is, who is he referring to? Oh, you faithless generation. You think he's referring to the crowds? You think he's referring to the scribes? Look at the text. The answer is obvious. He's referring to his disciples. Oh, oh, you faithless generation. And in his exasperation, he says after that to his disciples, how long? How long? How long have I been with you? How long have you been with me? How long do I have to put up with this unbelief after all of the time that we've spent together, after all of the things that I've shared with you, after all of the things that you've seen me do? How long is it going to take before you get it for me to keep teaching you the same things over and over and over? And so Jesus is pained. He's exasperated over their lack of faith over their doubts, over their unbelief, and he's conveying that it's inexcusable. And so if you look in verses 20 through 24, look at what happens. And I want to point out there are actually two needs in the text, two things that areas that Jesus provides a diagnosis for. The first is the need of the boy. Boy is obviously demon-possessed. Verse 20 is clear. When the boy is brought to Jesus, the text says, when he saw him. You see that in verse 20? And so who was it that sees Jesus? Well, the boy sees Jesus, and there's pretty good indication that it also could refer to the demon who possessed the boy seeing Jesus. And the reason it could be the demon that sees Jesus is because when he sees Jesus, immediately the demon throws the boy into this violent convulsion, falling to the ground, rolling around. The Bible says becoming rigid, gnashing of teeth, and foaming at the mouth. And so that's what comes on. Bring the boy here. And so this demon convulses the boy. And while that's happening to the boy, I love verse 21. And while that is happening, Jesus calmly asks the dad, how long has he been like this? How long has this been the case? It's a question of compassion. And the dad answers, he, he's been this way his entire life. It's been tain, painful, terrible. Uh, the demon throws him into the fire, tries to drown him in water. 
And then in desperation, verse 22, the dad pleads. Jesus, I know you care. And if there is, if, if there is anything that you can do, Jesus, if you can, I need your help. And in verse 23, Jesus turns the table on him. Look at what he does. Jesus says to this dad in front of these weak faith, unbelieving disciples and in front of the scribes and in front of this crowd, he says back to the dad, if you, if you, if you believe, then all things are possible. Things like your boy being healed. The dad's response, just love it, it's, it's open, it's raw, it's honest. He says in verse 24, yes, Jesus, yes, Lord, I, I believe in you. Yes, I, I believe, I have faith, and I have a desire to believe, but honestly, my faith is still weak. And don't overlook verse 27 and verse 24. In verse 27, when he first comes to Jesus, he refers to him as teacher, as rabbi, but here it changes in verse 24. Something changes in the dad's mind, and now he refers to him as Lord. Lord, I need you to deliver my boy from this enemy's possession, this demon control, and I also need you to deliver me from my unbelief and my doubts. Very open, very honest, very raw. And I would say the second need that Jesus recognizes in the text is greater than the need of the boy. It's far greater. The greater need is the weak faith of the nine disciples. So in demonstration of who he was and in response to the dad, to the need of the boy, in front of the 12, all 12 disciples in the presence of the scribes with all of the crowd watching and listening on, in verse 25, Jesus demonstrates his compassion and his power and his identity and he rebukes the demon, this unclean spirit and commands him to come out of the boy and to never enter into him again. And there's one last violent protest. The, the demon left the boy, but the boy is left exhausted, lying on the ground with every, everyone wondering if he was still alive, if he was dead. And Jesus then compassionately takes the lad by the hand, raises him up, it's quiet, it's calm, and he is healed. The greatest need of the story, both then and today, was the faith of the disciples to move from being unbelieving to move from being full of doubts to being strong and resolute faith. That's the need. Faith in Christ. Saving faith and then living by faith. And I want you to notice at the end of the text in verses 28 and 29, we find the solution. Later, these 12 disciples alone with Jesus, they ask him, what happened? Why couldn't we help the boy? Why were we unable to help the dead? Why couldn't we cast out this demon? And if you have your Bible open, I invite you to go back a couple of chapters over to chapter 6. Look with me in Mark chapter 6. You see verse 7, and then look with me at verse 12 and 13. Mark 6 verse 7. And he called the 12 to himself 
and began to send them out two by two and gave them power, authority over demons, over unclean spirits. Then look at verse 12. And the disciples went out and preached that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They had done this before. Disciples were sent out, given authority, power over demons. They'd, they'd cast out demons before. Why not this time? Lord, we've done it before. What's the problem? Why couldn't we help the dad? Why couldn't we help the boy? Why were we not successful? Why did we fail this time? And Jesus says in verse 29, this kind of demon... So maybe there's tougher demons and more experienced demons and inexperienced demons. There may be some differences in the demon world between these spirits. But he says this kind, maybe a tougher kind, it's a greater challenge. But the point is, this is a greater challenge. This one is more difficult. And this one requires deeper dependence upon me through prayer and fasting. And so here's the lesson. They'd been successful earlier and perhaps in their previous confidence and in their success, maybe these representatives, maybe these disciples begin to depend less upon God, less upon God's power, less upon him and they begin to depend more on themselves and their knowledge and their experience and neglected something as simple as prayer, time alone with God, fasting, conveying dependence with the thought, with the idea, we got this. We can handle this. We can do this. See, Jesus is trying to prepare these brothers for the future, for the time when he's not just going to be gone temporarily up on Mount Hermon, but preparing them for the time when he's going to be gone permanently. And they need to know who he was, and they need to develop a strong working trust and confidence in Jesus and a confidence in his word. We sang earlier, standing, standing on the word, standing on the promises. The Christian life, your Christian life, the moment that it started until the end when God calls you home from start to finish, the Christian life is about faith. It's about faith. It's all about faith. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we Christians walk by faith, not sight. He said to the Galatians, for the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. The Bible says faith is the assurance of things that we hope for. In other words, all of our hopes rest in faith. And without such faith, it is impossible to please God. 
And so what I would propose is that when the doubts come to us, when God speaks and reveals something to us from his word and commands us to do this or that or not to do this or not to do that, that's clear. And when the unbelief comes, you say, well, how do I know when the unbelief comes? The unbelief comes when there's disobedience. All spiritual disobedience to the word of God is because of unbelief. What caused Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden? Unbelief. They believed they knew better than God. God says this, the enemy says, no, that's not how it is. God's trying to keep you from being happy. God's trying to hold out from you. And God knows in the day that you do what he says not to do, that's when your eyes are going to be open. That's when you're going to be happy. That's when you're going to be fulfilled. That's when you'll be satisfied. And so they disobey. It was the source of it was unbelief. All disobedience is unbelief. God says, this is how I want you to handle every dollar that I give to you. Unbelief says, no, I'm not going to do that. God says, this, husbands, this is how you're to love your wives and serve them and treat them. Unbelief says, no, nah, I'm not doing that. You could say the same thing for wives. This is the way to raise your family. This is the way to disciple your kids. Unbelief says, no, it'll be okay. I'm not going to do that. It's unbelief. It's doubt. It's not strong faith. And as a result, we don't experience and see God move and bless in our lives the way that he wants to. In the fall of 1980, I had moved 500 miles away from Michigan to a Bible college in southern Indiana near Evansville, Indiana, and I was sitting in a New Testament survey class, and I'll close with this story. And I began to hear what is known as textual criticism questions about the Bible that I had never thought of in my life. Questions like, who are the men who wrote the Bible, and how were they inspired? Did they hear God's voice audibly and just wrote did they fall into the trance as they wrote and became like word processors and mechanically wrote like a machine? Or did they write from memory? And how did the Holy Spirit guide them when they wrote? And how do we know for sure that the red letters in the Bible are really the, the words of Jesus? And if they're not really the words of Jesus, are they reliable? Did, do you think that men followed Jesus around with tape recorders and recorded everything that he said and then they dictated it all back to the writers? And how was the New Testament formed? How were the books? How were the letters gathered? How were they canonized? And are there some additional letters and books that never were canonized? And so is our Bible really reliable? Is it really complete? And as there things that have been included, should they have not been included? And what about the translation process from Greek to English? And into other languages, is there a possibility that the scribes mistranslated them and there's errors now from the translations or the scribes were filled with inaccuracies and they made mistakes as they translated the Bible and I was introduced to the synoptic problem, becoming aware that there were textual differences between Matthew and Mark and Luke and I never heard 
those kind of questions in church. I never even thought about such questions, but they're good questions. Fact is, while growing up in church and listening to Sunday school teachers and sermons who I thank God for, and additionally thank God for my mother who did her best to take those Bible encyclopedias at night before me and my brother and sister went to sleep, and she'd sit down and we'd read through those Bible encyclopedias trying to instill God's Word in us, and we'd kneel by the side of our bed every night, and I remember watching, seeing those paint cans. I had some old dilapidated bed, and my sister and brother and I, all three of us slept in the same bed, and there were paint cans holding up the bed and I remember kneeling down there every night with my mother and she would pray with us and teach us to pray and ask us to pray and I never thought about such questions and sitting in a small desk in my tiny dorm room reading from books about New Testament and textual criticism regarding God's word it, it affected me deeply and I began to entertain some serious doubts. What if the Bible isn't true? What if the Bible isn't reliable? What if those red letters really aren't the words of Jesus? And this was all going on inside of me in my mind. And then I started doubting my call. If this thing is not reliable, if this word is not true, why, why am I here at Bible college studying and preparing to serve as a pastor? If the scriptures aren't true, if they're not really inspired, why would I devote my life to this? And after a period of weeks, my doubts didn't get better. They grew and got worse. And I had more and more questions without answers, which led to a cry. Any of you do that Blackaby study? Where he talks about a crisis of unbelief crisis of faith. And I began to actually question my own salvation. How can I build my life on Christ? How can I follow him and go into ministry if the Bible is not true, if God is not who he says he is? And so without anybody knowing this, I started having thoughts of withdrawing from school and moving back home. Mindy had moved down there with me. It's probably, if it wasn't for her, I probably would have bailed. I thought about dropping out, leaving, but God in his providence intervened. And one night it came to a, to a greater crisis and I remember leaving that dorm room, walking down that staircase and just, I didn't know where I was going, but I just began to walk and I walked down this little street in Oakland City, Indiana. And I was talking to God and wrestling with all of this wasn't even sure if God was listening. And ahead of me out on the sidewalk in front of this house was this old man, this old guy. And his name was Dr. Richard B. Smith. And we referred to him as Doc Smith. He was a PhD graduate from New Orleans Seminary. I'd never talked to him. I'd seen him around campus. He was a former police officer in New Orleans and went into ministry and he rode a motorcycle around campus, usually was smoking a cigarette when you'd see him riding around. And God led me to him as I walked down that sidewalk and he said, hello. And I said, hello. And he's, I remember he said, how, how are you doing? And I don't remember a lot after that except bursting into tears. That old man said, what's your name? Charlie, he said, well, come into my house. What's, what's going on? And his wife's name was Nina. And, and he called Miss Nina in there. And 
And she brought a box of Kleenex in there and brought some of me something to drink. And that old man sat with me for several hours that night. And he said, what's going on with you? And I began to pour out all my questions and all my doubts and all my confusion. And that old guy, remember, went over to in the family room, sat in the chair, and he went over and got his Bible. And every question that I had, he began to share with me from Scripture. Share with me the Scripture and talk to me and calm me down and prayed with me and I got to tell you, the Holy Spirit began to minister to me, and it was the beginning process of my faith getting stronger and growing in the Lord. It didn't, it didn't. All of, all of my questions weren't answered right then, but God used him to settle my spirit. And I want to say this to you. Whatever questions you have about the Bible, if they're honest questions, sincere, gen- listen to me. God's word will sustain any criticism. God's word can sustain any criticism. It'll hold up. It's reliable. It's true. It's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction and training in righteousness. And I'll say this also to you. If you have doubts, if you're struggling with issues of unbelief, then be honest before God and bring it all to him. And God will minister to you. And he'll move you from unbelief and he'll move you from doubt to stronger faith. I want to share with you next week some practical things. I'm going to do a follow-up message on some real practical things that we can do to strengthen our faith, to keep us in faith, to keep us out of unbelief and out of doubt. But what I want to say to you this morning is not all doubts are bad. What I want to say to you is some doubt, some unbelief is a normal process of spiritual growth. And any person, any believer that never has doubts or never has any issues of unbelief is probably persons who've never really thought deeply about God and deeply about their faith and questioned anything. It's a part of the growing process. You certainly see that occurring with Jesus' disciples. I invite you this morning to pray if you're struggling with some issues of doubt and unbelief and cry out to God like the disciples And say, Lord, I do have faith, I do believe in you, and I want to believe in you, but God, there's still issues of doubt, there's still issues of unbelief. My faith is not what it needs to be. And God will hear you. Right where you are, he'll hear you. I invite you to pray pray with me.